Welcome to this late hour. A look at the world through the lens of scripture. I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today marks the third part of my discussion with returning guest Andrew Jones and the second part of my interview concerning the real Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. If you haven't picked up the last interview or the last episode, I'd highly recommend going back and listening to that before moving on today. We're going to be moving right into discussion about uh, the mountain and the kinds of rocks that are present on the top and all kinds of interesting features uh, around the base of the mountain as well. So join me for my final discussion with Andrew Jones this season concerning the real Mount Sinai. striking is that this mountain is blackened on top and as we read the the bible of course it talks about the lord coming down and a cloud of fire so uh, what do we know about the the discoloration on the the peak of this mountain and and could we assume that perhaps this is a mark that was left by the lord's presence yeah so the the black top you know that was um first documented by the caldwells and so the ron put that in his newsletter uh, and that you know it's very impressive. You look around, you see this uh, uh, mountain, no clouds in the sky, and it has black rock on the top. In fact, the name itself uh, and the and the name of the mountain next to it, the Arabic names for the modern mountain, uh, or the modern name for the mountain, I should say, uh, has this idea of burning or frying or burnt built into the Arabic meaning. Um, so yeah, when you look at it exactly, uh, you know. It gives you an idea of uh, what could possibly have happened there as a result of God's fire. Now, in regards to the type of rock that's up there, um, we know that this black rock is basalt. Again, we're back to basalt. Uh, and that's a volcanic rock. Um, and when you open it up, uh, the rock. So the base of the mountain is this lighter granite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the top is this blacker basalt. And you, but you also find other types of rocks up there. You find marble, like these marble pillars you find at the base of Mount Sinai. They were mined. Uh, there's a quarry, an ancient quarry, up that valley where the stream bed is at, you know, where the water would have come down. And at the top of that uh, gorge is uh, a vein of marble. Uh, you can see it in some of the photos people have posted online. And so you have marble up there, you have granite, uh, and you have this black uh, basalt rock. Uh, now, some people say when you open it up that the outside is dark, but the inside is light. Uh, sometimes that happens. Um, you know, I've been up there numerous times, actually, and I have a, a lot of different samples of rocks from up there, from the different peaks. And uh, some of them, when you break it open, especially on um, uh, a, a vein that's a, a crack that's already visible, so you can easily break it because the rock is pretty hard. But when you break it along that crack, the outside is the black, and then along that exposed section of rock you just took out it goes uh, to a lighter uh, color but it's still basalt it's not like it's going from basalt to granite in the rock Um, 
So the question is, is this uh, these, this basalt rock that obviously was already there, uh, the fire god did not create basalt, uh, but is this basalt rock unique compared to other basalt rock in the region around the world? Um, did God's presence create um, something that would have uh, uh, done something unique to the outside layer of this rock? Because uh, normally, like there is something called um, an effect out there called like desert varnish um, oxidation. Mm-hmm. And if you look up that term with rocks on Google, you can find images of other rocks around the world where it's dark on the outside and goes lighter on the inside. Uh, so the question is not that um, that only happens here because we know it doesn't. But uh, can we prove that there was a, like a maybe a sped up process where the rocks really oxidized and uh, changed color uh, in God's presence more than it would naturally have done if it was just left out in the desert sun and you know, eroded and oxidized the elements. And so we don't know yet. Um, uh, in fact, we did get a sample of this rock out to uh, Bar-Ilan University, which has one of the top um, nanotechnology laboratories in Israel. Um, and they are studying it right now as we speak. I think actually we gave them the rock back in uh, February of this year, and uh, they are really interested in the site and actually doing the testing for us for free. So um, I don't have any results to to announce on your podcast, but uh, you know if we have something unique or interesting, or even if we don't, we'll let you know, and we can explain about it in a future possible interview part four. <laughs> but uh, Anyways, uh, so for now, uh, you know, I can't say much other than we know it's basalt um, and we want to see if it's unique, though, um, what's going on with the outside layer or if that's just natural. You know, God's presence uh, did uh, show up also at the burning bush and it did not consume the bush. So his presence did not physically change the bush, which was naturally grown there on Mount Sinai. Uh, So, you know, you do have the possibility that the same thing was happening on the top of the mountain. Um, you know, it does talk about fire and smoke. Um, so the question is whether that was just, you know, the visual uh, representation of God up there with the, him speaking out of the fire, or was that was he physically burning the rocks up there? Uh, and so we're hoping the laboratory could tell us something. So we we're, we'll we'll see soon. I hope. Well, I I do know. I mean, as far as I I understand that. The interesting thing is it's the only mountain that has a blackened top. Is that right? No. Yeah. So that's a, a misunderstanding. And I don't know who started that, but when you get there, you'll notice that, I mean, you can actually now see on Google satellite images that, uh, you know, when you see the Makla, which is called Jebel Makla, that peak that has the cave of Elijah at the base is the altar of Moses and all that. But um, along that peak, uh, you'll see the black rocks and you'll see the color change and it goes to further down the uh, side of the mountain. It turns to granite, uh, but, but that uh, black rock continues on to the nearby mountain, which could possibly be part of the mountain of God. You know, you know, how big is God and how big was the fire on the mountain? Uh, but then it also goes west um, out um, down into the valley um, on the western side of Jebel Makla, which is the, uh, the side that's, you know, towards the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. And it continues on to those other mountains there. So this basalt layer, uh, the basalt itself is not unique. It's covering a bunch of areas out there. Um, The question I think is more interesting is whether the basalt on the top is unique compared to other uh, basalt. Uh, But the the black rock itself is not 
uh, just on the very top of that one mountain. So trying to get a visual image of this. So, so how many of the surrounding mountains is that blackened rock on then? Is it just how, like, is it a, it's like a, a certain amount of miles around that it covers or is it going out into way out into other areas or? Well, um, in the surrounding area, you do have a number of uh, veins of basalt. You do have an other mountains that connected to this mountain that are dark. Uh, and then th those that are, are connected, you can say like the continuous black rock that continues from the peak. Uh, you have the mountain just to the south. Uh, and, so, and some people, I think they're right uh, in saying that that southern peak that's right beside this one could be included in the Mountain of Moses um, you know, name. But uh, on top of that, though, as I mentioned, when you go to the west, this black uh, continues. Uh, and I don't know the actual acreage or how many miles, but it does go down uh, the sides of the uh, the, the back side, or you can call it the western side of, of this mountain range, down to the valley, which I've driven at the remote area back there on the west side. Uh, and then it goes up uh, and covers the smaller uh, hills and mountains on that western side. Uh, so again, I, I haven't measured the uh, the distance or how many acres, but um, it's it's not just on the the top of this one mountain. Uh, that, that, that's one hundred percent sure. Now you mentioned marble that like there was a marble vein that they you know ancient uh, mining had been taking place, and what we would assume Moses had made some of those altars, the pill the pillars from, um, so. Is the marble only at sort of these vein areas, or is it also on the tops of the mountains, or is it just the basalt? There is a marble vein uh, um, near the very top of the mountain, uh, and it continues down that gorge um, to right at the the layer, the the elevation where the black goes to granite rock. The rock type changes. Mm -hmm. That's where there's also a marble deposit, and that's where you find. Um, uh, the quarry, which because you see the the tool marks there, you actually see an unfinished uh, pillar column or you know, one of those round cylinder mm -hmm. pieces still there, um, and so that's up that gorge. That's um, you follow the gorge down, um, which is that stream bed. You end up at the altar Moses site and where the rest of the marbles at down there. Um, so yes, the marble itself does continue um, up even towards the the very top of that, uh, which is basically between the two peaks um but that ridge basically between the two peaks which is pretty high you know it's near the the top elevation for the mountain there's marble there so it's not just black in fact uh so besides that type of rock and the black rock there is a, a flat area and i was going to do a youtube video about this it's really interesting between uh, so on the southern ridge of this uh, mountain uh you find a number of small like humps or peaks kind of on the ridge mm -hmm. and between two of them there's a flat area it's just crazy because when you're walking along you're you're, you're trying to like rock scramble because there's no path and you're just going over these boulders of basalt and, and it's really difficult to walk and then you come to this very like it's like a rectangular flat area um and one of the rocks there uh it's a squarish and uh, you know from a distance i was like is that a man-made altar i mean this looks so man-made you get up to it it looks more natural but when I was walking around this flat area, you could land a helicopter there, but um, this flat area, it has um, granite rock. Like the rock in that area there is not basalt. And this is, you know, along the peak. This is along the ridge of those peaks. Uh, so this is at the top of the mountain. 
Uh, so you are finding more than just basalt up there. Um, so again, yeah, I know that some people really focus on the black being um, possible supernatural. Um, I think it's going to be more focused on uh, on a, almost a molecular level. You know, can we determine if there's outside uniqueness to these uh, black rock that's already there because it's natural basalt? Can we show that these are unique? compared to other areas in the world or in the region of Northwest Arabia that has the same basalt rocks. And so that's what we're focused on right now. Like we we got, got a sample of the very top. Uh, we gave it to the um, Israeli lab. And we also got um, a sample from another mountain that has basalt rock, black rock nearby. Uh, but that was not connected to this one at all. It was actually across the plain. And we didn't tell the Israeli lab which was which we said hey tell us what you can about these two rocks anything and so uh we just started that process um you know we gave them a sample in january but they actually because of their time frame and they do this for free for us so they had to fit us into their schedule they just recently started the last couple of weeks they're um, testing on everything so gotcha yeah i've wondered you know being near the top of the mountain if Maybe we could figure yeah, out. Yeah, I, exactly. You know, there's a mountain. Um, I can even send you the link to it, and you'd think I'm in Saudi Arabia. And I, as a, not a prank, but I, I went to this mountain in uh, Southern California, and I took the pictures in front of it, and I posted it on Facebook, and some friends were like, "Oh, you're in, you you made it Mount Sinai," <laughs> because this mountain, um, you know, there's a geological term called um, ah, uh, it's escaping me, like uh, top pendant or pendant top. So basically, the way um, like the layers are laid down. You know, probably right after the floods. I'm a creationist, I believe. So I don't believe like the, the dates they give these things, like millions of years. Um, but you know, so they have the basalt. Obviously, came from an underwater eruption, or uh, or just like when the water receded, they started erupting from a vent in the ground. And so this, this lava comes up, and the basalt rock comes up from the deep. And then when that's laid down later on via plate tectonics or, or whatever's going on, these mountains are formed, and it. And below it is granite, and that these mountains then push up. You know, they're they're up, uh, they they rise up, and you have this now chain of mountains. And the very top of it was the basalt layer that was originally laid down, and below it you have the lighter whatever type of rock like granite. And there's a mountain in Southern California near Needles that's exactly like this. It has the dark top, very distinct line, um, and the bottom is a light colored. I don't know if it's granite or something, but the top is definitely basalt, and. Um, so you find, if you Google that uh, geological term, you'll find uh, examples of this phenomenon. So it's a, it definitely is a natural phenomenon. And so the question, though, is not did God melt granite and make it basalt? Because it doesn't work that way. You know, the geological process, when you melt granite, it doesn't turn to basalt. But um, the question is, is that basalt up there, which probably was already there when they came, the Israelites came through? But um, is that basalt unique basalt? And is there something physically changed on the outside of it? or any, anywhere in the rock that we can prove in a laboratory. And so we're taking our first steps at trying to answer that question. So were the Ten Commandments made of granite, basalt, or marble? <laughs> you know, the first, so yeah, so you think about it, the first set which God gave to Moses uh, and he broke, uh, we don't know uh, whether he just supernaturally created it out of nothing or he, you know, you look at basalt as ugly, um, it's not a nice looking rock. Um, it's you know volcanic and porous and uh, it's just yeah it's just not nice looking but you know marble is you know people make statues out of it and such um, granite can be a nice looking there's different like granite uh, tops you put in your kitchen and all that so there's different colors of granite 
Um, so the base of the granite is a tan, but it's, you know, speckled, different colors. The marble is obviously all white and nice looking. Um, you know, so when he broke that first set, we don't know exactly what it was. But what's interesting, when, he, when God told him to make the second set, it said um, he made it and brought it up. So whatever stones he had at the base of the mountain available to Moses, that's what he used to make the second set. And so when God told him to make it like the first, you know, did he mean like the size and shape only, or did he mean use the same type of rock? Um, but at any rate, we know at the base of this mountain is, um, you know, marble sections that people have brought down, whether they did that or not at that time or later. But definitely uh, there's granite everywhere. Um, and so it's possible, you know, I know some people say it's blue stone because they ate with God and they saw blue under his feet, but uh, there's no blue stone there. We, we are finding um, some stones that has a blue uh, hue or coloration. I can see some photos of that. Like there's a, a slight layer on the, the outside. Um, and one of these stones I brought down from the summit, it has this like very thin layer of blue. Uh, I don't, I'm not a geologist. So I'm trying, I don't know what would you call it, but it, uh, you know, sparkles and it's a blue tinge. It's not black, but it's on like the, the black stone, but it has blue on the outside. So I'll show, I can send you a photo of that. And then uh, one of our uh, tourists, he's actually a CBN reporter who's on our last uh, tour. Him and his wife found a section where they climbed up with us. They kind of went off on their own and they came across this rock that has really beautiful um, patterns of blue in it. Um, it almost looked like fossils from the uh, uh, sea. But at any rate, um, they said it's really hard. You couldn't chip it either. But uh, that was found on the side of the mountain too. So, you know, whether the tank counts were blue, that's another story, but definitely um, I believe it was, it was a rock taken, you know, from that mountain range. Of course. Now I'm not familiar with this whole idea of the blue. Uh, it had to be blue. Ah. What is, where's is this from? Okay. So yeah, you can, you, you Google it, you see people discussing it. Well, it, so the, the, it comes from the story where the 70 elders, they go to meet uh, God. So they go up with Moses and Joshua and said they had the 70 elders of Israel along with, um, uh, her, he went up there, and Aaron. So it was quite a group. They went up there, and, they, and it says they ate with God. This is in Exodus chapter 24. And they ate with God, and he didn't kill them for seeing, you know, they, I guess they saw his backside or part of him, but it says he ate, they ate with him, and under his feet was like uh, a pavement of, the King James says uh, sapphire or blue stone. Mm -hmm. um, I think they say it could be lapid lazuli, which is like a, a similar type to sapphire, but um, anyways, it's a bluish color stone, and that's what they said they saw under God's feet. People interpret that to mean because later on it talks about like the stone Moses used to, you know, but he was given, or I, I think at this point he had already um, the the uh, the golden calf had not ha happened yet. So it, later on in, in that chapter, when God gives him the first set of the Ten Commandments. Um, people try to connect the verses together by saying, look, it talks about the stone and the only unique stone in that chapter is this blue stone. Um, and so they try to connect the two and say, well, this might be what God first gave Moses was a you know, Ten Commandments written on blue stone. Gotcha. Um, Interesting. So anyways, that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the that theory, you know, but uh, anyways, there's not like sapphire up there or lapis lazuli stone, but there's definitely this black rock at the top. And some of it has, Again, uh, a bluish uh, outside layer. But again, I, I don't know if that was what the technology was written on or the nice white marble or the tan granite at the base. <laughs> well, let's move back down the mountain. I'm, I want to talk a little bit about these petroglyphs. 
because you have these cow petroglyphs, you know, kind of all over that, what we would assume is the golden calf altar. Now, I don't know if these, have these been compared to Egyptian, the Egyptian style? Because I know the Egyptians had a god, like a cow, didn't they? Yeah. They had two. They had a a male god called Apis. Uh, He was a bull. Uh, And then they had the female goddess Hathor. Um, And both you can see elements um, of being possibly used during this incident. You know, it it used the plural in Exodus where it says, uh, I think Aaron says this, these are your gods that took you out of Egypt, you know. So they, you know, the Israelites having lived in um, Egypt that long would have obviously known the pagan religion of the Egyptians. And, you know, both were famous um, deities in the Egyptian pagan religion. Now, uh, Hathor, which is the female uh, goddess, uh, female cow, um, she's, uh, I believe I remember correctly, uh, she's uh, like the patron for artists, you know, think of somebody making a golden calf, but also for musicians and I think partying and uh, sensuality. Uh, so you do have these all these elements that would just fit with them throwing a big rave or a party at the basin on Sinai mm-hmm. um, and, and dancing around this uh, god or a bunch of gods, you know, like the apis bull and a, and a cow goddess. Uh, now, are these petroglyphs carved in the style of this? Now, what's really interesting, when Ron went there in 1985 with David Fazold, uh, they were placed under house arrest by the Saudis, you know, poor Ron, he, he goes back legally and he still gets in trouble. Um, anyway, so they're in uh, the Saudi citizen who had invited them into the country with a legal visa. Um, they were just, you know, they weren't put in prison, but they were, they told, the Saudis told them you need to stay at this guy's house. And so uh, they were there and they waited for a Saudi archaeologist from Riyadh University. Riyadh is the capital of Saudi Arabia. And he flew into Tabuk. It's like a two hour flight or a one and a half hour flight. So he gets there and David Fazl had videoed like all their activities at the mountain and they show this guy on video like what they had found. Um, and he sees the the petroglyphs and he tells like, Fazl backs up what Ron said and that the Saudi says to Ron that these are Egyptian style uh, cows. And he congratulates Ron. Fazl backs that up too. He says the Saudi uh, congratulated Ron for his discovery, you know, just based on looking at Fazl's video. Um, and then that's when he offered Ron to uh, stay and help uh, help them excavate, and Ron declined. But um, today, if you were to ask the Saudis, though, in fact, they put a book out kind of back in um, 2000, I want to say, called Al-Bid. Uh, in this book, they actually mentioned Ron Wyatt and um, uh, Larry Williams and Bob Cranuk, Um, and they claim in there that these cows are not unique and that they're just found all over the place. Now, you do find uh, cow petroglyphs. I've seen others like far from the mountain and other sites around Arabia. Arabia is full of rock art. There's a lot of rock art. So who made what is really difficult to uh, date cow petroglyphs, you know, but what's interesting, you have this whole pile of boulders and the original archeologists who saw it. said these are Egyptian style ones. And it's at the mountain that the other locals said, here's the mountain of Moses, you know, Hina Jebel Musa. So you have all these pieces fitting together that, that these, this could be unique. Um, I, but you know, then they left it alone. They didn't really study out anything further about the site. They fenced it off. The Saudis did, but they haven't done much after that. So I think there's further work that can be done there. But again, based on the original statement that they said that these were Egyptian style cows 
Um, and so I don't think there's a problem to quote them on that. Well, and if we go a little further away from the mountain, we come to the split rock. And now this is quite extraordinary thing to see on video. Obviously we can't see it on this podcast, but I will link it in the show notes, but, uh, some of the drone footage of that is incredible. So what can you tell us about the giant split rock? What we'd call the rock of Horeb. Uh, that's one of the most amazing sites. So on my first trip there in 2016, uh, I was able to thankfully um, climb Mount Sinai, but when it was still at the most of everything on that trip, and we saw everything that, you know, was mentioned in Ron and, and the Caldwell's material uh, was the split rock. That was the, the thing that, that stood out the most to me. Um, see, it's huge. Like in the video, it's kind of hard. Maybe now with drone video, you can understand how big it is. But when you're there, you see this huge split rock standing on its own on top of a hill that's you know not that small itself so it's pretty high up this the whole thing the rock plus the hill and um and then you especially that one angle where you see through the split you know it's just amazing to realize what god did there but um this site is um on the uh western side of the mountain range and according to the biblical account in exodus 17 and 18 uh, this was called Rephardim. So this is where there was no water, which even today, there's no oasis right there. So you can see why they were complaining about the water. This is where the Amalekites end up attacking them. So you do have large plains and valleys all around the split rock where the Israelites could encamp, plus go outside of the encampment and fight the Amalekites. So there's plenty of space for both of that, uh, both of those um, and then you also have evidence of water erosion or wind erosion uh, around the rocks there. But it's really interesting at the base of the split rock where the split is, you really see um, this erosion in effect. And so, you know, some people have said, well, that's just natural because you have other rocks that are smooth around the area. But what's interesting is, uh, you know, it doesn't discount what happened here. According to the Bible, in Psalms, I believe, 105, it says it was rivers of water. You think of the one to two million people, plus their flocks and herds that needed water. It wasn't just a trickle. People weren't walking by. You know, I saw this uh, a painting done in the uh, Renaissance, and like everyone had a cup. And they're like walking up to a, <laughs> a little, like in a line, and they're getting like a little Drinking sip of fountain. water. Yeah, exactly. And you think how long that would take, and then you have the animals waiting in the turn. <laughs> so definitely what this says in Psalms makes total sense that there's rivers of water coming out. So I can see if, if that's true, which I believe it is, then uh, that would eroded quickly the rocks. And so, yes, you would have natural erosion around the area, but what happened there and what formed that erosion at the slit rock could have happened within a matter of hours or days as the water's rushing through, we don't know, you know, how many days they encamped at Rephardim before they went on to Mount Sinai. Um, so that again, this area fits perfectly. Now there's something just really interesting about this site. You know, you talk to locals, you had a friend of ours or acquaintance, I should say, tell us this story. He said they, they ran into one of the locals who happened to actually be born um, at the base of the split rock. His mother um, gave birth to him at the base. Now, wow. and just like, just like you have like an, um, you know, modern times, you have someone with the same name or like you want to say like this person, um, like understand who they are. You say like, uh, oh, that's Andrew of Sacramento, like where I'm from. <laughs> like there's a bunch of Andrews or whatever. 
over there, like they do the same thing, where it's like they have, let's say, the guy I don't know what, who, what his name was, but let's just say it was Muhammad. <laughs> so let's just say if he's known as Muhammad, like a number of towns in the area, he could be like Muhammad of Cairo or Muhammad of Riyadh. Well, his name was Muhammad of the Rock because everyone in the area knew what they meant when you say the rock. It was the special, unique looking rock that's standing up there at the base of Jebel Allah's. And so when God in when God tells Moses in Exodus, stand by the rock, you know, he talks about the water coming from the rock. Well, out there, there's rocks everywhere. I mean, there's no trees hardly, and it's this barren mountainside of solid rock. And so, like, which rock is he talking about? Well, it's interesting today when someone says, I'm Muhammad of the Rock, you're in that area, you know that he was the guy who was you know born at the base of the split rock. And so uh, it, it's interesting because, you know, it fits the biblical account of when God says something very similar to Moses and says, stand by the rock. Uh, it had to be a special rock that they would understand. Is it our understanding that Moses would have been at the t- on the top of this rock when he struck it or just on the side? Or, or how do we suspect that that would have happened based on the biblical account? Well, so there's a number of hills beside it, like connecting to where this rock is, is standing on top. So it's possible he was either standing on a, a hill right beside it, um, or he could have stood at the base of this rock and the water, uh, because it's, you know, it's, it's split in half. So the water would have you know shot out from the sides. So he could have been on, on a side that did not have the water shooting out, uh, you know. So there's different ways you could visualize it, but definitely there's space for him to stand and not get washed away by the water. And there, there is a way to get to the top of it, isn't there? Oh, well, to the base of it. Yeah, you can walk up the hill. There's definitely a way to walk up the hill to the base of the split rock, but you cannot, um, I suppose if you're a mountain climber with gear, you can uh, scale the actual rock and get to the very top of it. But yes, you can get to the top of the hill that has the, the split rock on it. Gotcha. We do that on our tours. Yeah, we take people up there and they can expl- they can go through the split and look at, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because you you find this smooth um, indentions like holes um, and so some people pointed out that, well, maybe this is where the actual water like miraculously came out of the, the, the rock inside there, uh, you know, speculation, but yeah, still uh, very interesting to consider that. So uh, around the split rock, isn't there also evidence of like uh, sandal prints on the rocks or like some kind of, cause there was a battle there you mentioned, isn't there evidence of that? And even an ancient graveyard nearby, am I right on this? Um, okay, so some of that's right. <laughs> uh, there is on the backside of this rock, I say the backside, because everyone takes the photo of one side of it, which is the west side. So on the east side, near there, there's a whole area of black rock, and you do see petroglyphs carved on their like, hunting scenes, and interestingly enough, these sandal uh, like footprint type uh, petroglyphs. And so some have connected that to the Israelites, you know, obviously you're um, you're speculating because it doesn't say anywhere that they had the carbs, uh, um, their footprints on the rocks, though there's a verse in Deuteronomy talking about where God says that wherever they walk will be their territory, though um, he does clarify, you know, where that is, and he talks about the promised land. So I do know some people try to extend that down to Saudi Arabia, but uh, for, personally, I don't think it, that's the case. Um so when you look at the other side of the mountain on the east side where the Israelites encamped, you also find this footprint uh, petroglyphs and in other parts of the Middle East. In fact, there are different uh, scholarly papers uh, printed about the footprints. And so they're found in other parts of the region, not just at the Slip Rock. 
Oh, so, in regards to your other question about the graveyard, yeah, so that's the part where, um, uh, so the graveyard is actually on the eastern side of the mountain range, very near the encampment. Uh, it's just, I think it's a couple miles away from the Golden Calf altar, uh, but it's on the base of the other side of the mountain. So that makes sense, though, with the biblical account of when they killed the 3,000 as an example, from uh, which would be the Golden Calf. So the Levites went and killed 3,000, and this huge graveyard that's an archaeological site and fenced off and has standing stones in it, uh, that's right near you know where the Golden Calf incident happened, but outside of the encampment, so they didn't bury their dead you know, for uh, cleanliness issues and laws of purity, obviously the dead were not buried in the encamp. Uh, so yeah, this was uh, just outside the encampment at the base of the mountain. And another key piece of evidence, uh, I'm glad you brought it up, but yes, there is a graveyard there. And I know at one point there was a menorah that was carved into a rock that unfortunately someone defaced. But uh, Yeah, we, uh, Dr. Kim found that, um, I think 2005 or six. That's about 95 miles south of here. So it might have been part of the wanderings, you know, after they left Mount Sinai and they got denied entry in the promised land, they wandered for another 38 years. Um, and uh, the Caldwells and even Ron Wyatt believe that that wandering was not in a little area in the southern Negev or, you know, the Sinai Peninsula, as the traditional maps show you in the back of your Bible, but that the wanderings were actually throughout the, the Arabian Peninsula for 38 years. So they, they possibly they carved that during that time. Uh, it's definitely not at the base of Mount Sinai. We, um, Dr. Kim never got a, a GPS location for it, but he gave us the general area. And then based on his photographs, um, I had a tour group in January of 2020. Uh, go, we went back there using his photos. We were able to rediscover the uh, the rock that has an inscription on it. Uh, and sadly, it is destroyed now. Uh, they, only that one, you can still see the menorah shape, but they, they, they chiseled out the menorah, and left everything else. You know, there's other ancient writings on it and characters on that big boulder, but um, obviously the publicity about it didn't sit well with some of the locals or somebody, and they sadly chiseled it out. So when you kind of see the the full, you know, amount of evidence and start putting it together, it seems you know, very likely that this is the correct location and just the, it's not just one thing. It's dozens of things as we, you know, you see the, the pillars, uh, you see the, the troughs or the uh, place where they would have done sacrifices and the, the, the potential golden calf altar. And then you have the cave and the, the graveyard, the split rock, and it goes on and on so given just the propensity of the evidence why do you think kind of similar to our, our conversation about the drupiner site why do you think there are still some who kind of reject the idea of its authenticity well maybe it's too good to be uh true <laughs> it's like wow if you have everything that matches in the bible uh you know i don't know it's hard again it's hard to know everyone's reasons to why they hold a certain theory or idea and unwilling to change their mind I think if you're honest and willing to seek truth, this makes sense. If you're going to hold on to something, maybe it's because that's what their PhD was based on or they whatever their pastor taught them this or because uh, they have their own theory of where Mount Sinai is that are unwilling to look at uh, another site with the evidence. Again, I don't know one other site that has everything matching than this site here in Northwest Saudi Arabia. Um, other sites you run to one or two issues or three issues or there's a whole bunch of issues that they have to get around or they have to change the biblical account to make it fit their Mount Sinai. So uh, I believe this site uh, is a perfect fit and you have 
not just the geography of the area and this possible archaeology around it, but you have the, the local tradition of the Israelites and Moses being in that area, even though there's a traditional site just right across the Gulf. There, there was this local tradition that was kept alive in northwest Saudi Arabia. So given the fact it used to be, well, it still has some fencing, but now that it's opened up to the public and to, to uh, tourists and it's not under, you know, uh, machine gun, <laughs> there's not guys yeah. walking around with guns anymore, you know, protecting this place. Uh, I mean, we're pretty fortunate to be able to get in there and just, uh, you know, have tours and, and go and see these sites. Why do you think God has allowed this to be opened up now and this time and, you know, on the earth? Well, I believe, like many others do believe, that we are living in end times and that God does not want anyone to perish. So he wants everyone who is honest and searching for truth to have all the evidence they need that he is God. Now, some people need more physical evidence than others, like Doubting Thomas. They need to see proof that these biblical stories occurred, that the Bible is true. And God, again, is willing to give that proof to those who are honestly looking for him, searching for him. And so that's why I believe that during this time in history that you have these pieces of evidence coming out for these key biblical events. You know, if we knew about Mount Sinai 200, 300, 400 years ago, there'd be nothing left today. And we have a lot of doubters today with atheism and evolution being taught that you need this type of evidence for those who are honestly searching. And so that's why I think God has preserved these sites until now. So where can people find more out, uh, out about uh, the real Mount Sinai? Where should they go if they want to find out more about your work and more about the mountain? Well, there's a number of sites. Now, if they want to come on a tour, we have uh, one. We have a five-day tour we do out there. Um, it, it starts on a, a Monday, so they need to fly in on a Sunday, and it goes from Monday to Friday, and then they fly out Friday night. Um, and they get to see all these sites in person. And if they're physically able to, they can even climb to the top of Mount Sinai into the cave of Elijah. They can go do that uh, via our website. It's discoveredsinai.com. Uh, that's past tense, discoveredsinai.com. And there's uh, the tours are listed there. Now they just want to watch videos if they can't come. That's fine. We have a lot of videos online, as do others. Uh, but you can look us up under Discovered Media uh, on our YouTube and other social media uh, platforms. We'll make sure to link all that sh stuff in the show notes. There's so much more I want to talk about. It's such a, a fun topic and seeing all these treasures that God has been revealing, but we are running out of time. But Andrew, so thankful you've come back on the show today. Thanks for giving up your valuable time. Thank you for having me. I'll be happy to uh, do this again. All right. Well, God bless you. God bless Hope you enjoyed this conversation with our returning guest, Andrew Jones, concerning the real Mount Sinai. Friends, there's so much more that could have been said. I was actually having trouble with uh, the way I was recording the interview and, and keeping him on. And he actually is uh, was communicating to me from Turkey. So it was really late his time and I had to let him go. But I would have loved to have talked for another hour with him. There's literally so much that can be talked about. Uh, so many just gems that can be found there in the desert uh, in Midian and Saudi Arabia area. In fact, uh, one of the things I saw recently is, because, uh, you know, in the Exodus account, it talks about the manna from heaven. 
uh, that God provided this supernatural sustenance, this sort of flaky, breadish-type material that would, you know, be found on the ground in the morning that they would collect, and they would grind it up. And uh, one of the, you know, uh, the areas there uh, down... I don't know if it's by the split rock or by the base of the mountain, but you can find these old mortars, you know, like a mortar and pestle where you would grind up spices. There are these rocks that are smoothed out with a rounded inside, you know, as a mortar, uh, where you can see where they would have been grinding up the manna. I mean, it's just every time you look, there's another thing that confirms or lines up with the biblical narrative of the Exodus account. Quite frankly, I mean, I think, there's almost no question this is really Mount Sinai. I mean, it's like 99.9%. I only leave the 0.1, you know, the 0.1 percentage there because there's not a flashing sign that says Moses was here. I mean, it is truly, um, you couldn't ask for a more um, perfect location as far as the alignment to scripture. Everything is there. The oasis they travel to, uh, the, the Red Sea crossing and the room for the two, one to two million people. Um, you know, there's been, you know, apparently, uh, the chariot wheels found on the ocean floor that have been encrusted with, encrusted with coral. Uh, now, you know, this may be a coincidence, but there are some very stunning shapes that look like Roman chariot wheels. Uh, in fact, one of the interesting things about the Nueva beach where they, uh, you know, assume that the Israelites would have crossed is that there's drop-offs under the water. There's sort of a land bridge, a natural land bridge that would have been at the perfect split, uh, uh, the perfect place for them to cross when the uh, Red Sea parted. But if you go too far over on the other side, there's a giant drop-off uh, that goes down, you know, I don't know, 8,000, 10,000 feet, something like that. And what I've always wondered is if we had a submersible, what we would find if we took it down there. Because if you get that to that depth, coral will not grow there. So anything that has fallen off the side will likely be preserved. Wouldn't that just be stunning to go down and see some things that may have been washed over the side of that land bridge? And then just coming up to the mountain again, you have the giant split rock and you have, you know, the um, petroglyphs and proto-Hebrew language uh, that's been found on the rocks, the sandal petroglyphs. You have the golden calf altar, the cave of Elijah. The blackened top, which may or may not be something to do with the Lord's presence. Uh, you have the, the the pillars of Moses, the altars, uh, the um, animal troughs or the uh, animal fencing where they would have kept uh, the animals for sacrifice. It's all there. You see the place where the water would have been to to come down and quench the thirst of of the travelers. Oh, with the, the dried up stream beds and wells. Truly, it's amazing. And again, I ask, why now? Why has God allowed this to be found, you know, in the last 30 or so years? And now you can take a tour there. I mean, this place used to be under guard with, uh, you know, by guys with machine guns. We are very privileged and blessed to be able to just go to the mountain and see it. I don't think God has brought it into our knowledge, into, into our has brought it into our attention for the point of us just being able to go and take a tour there, which, you know, Hey, if you have the funds and can do it, I would love to do that. I mean, that would be a huge blessing to be in that place because it makes the biblical stories real. I think it's very easy for us to, to think of our Bible stories as just, 
even though we believe them to be true, they become a story and, and just a piece of our theology rather than a very tangible historical event. And this is one of the joys of being able to go to these places, to, to, to physically touch the places that these biblical saints, you know, are heroes of the faith, if you will, uh, have been and walked and these stories that we've read all our lives. But I don't think it's just for that purpose. I think it's God has been bringing uh, these things up because of the days we're in as an attempt to get people's attention because the end is drawing close. In fact, it's interesting when we think about like three of the major what I call discoveries or the things that have been brought to the attention of the world or, or the church is that um, you have Noah's Ark, what we assume is Noah's Ark at the Drupaner site, and I'd say the evidence strongly supports that, and I'm interested to see what these uh, what the results of these tests were uh, from these Turkish officials. But that, you know, represents the covenant. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a mark and a remembrance of the covenant that God made with Noah. And then you have Mount Sinai where the covenant of the law was brought. And then you have the Shroud of Turin, which is a, a, a stark and, and beautiful and, and remarkable reminder of the new covenant. And so I find it interesting that, you know, many of the things that are, are being rediscovered, found again, brought to the attention of the church in these days uh, are things that point to God's promises that we can trust his word. We can trust him to be faithful and to fulfill that which he has promised us to do. And we, we also know he has promised to return and that he said that the gospel of the kingdom shall go to all the nations and then the end shall come. Do we believe him? Because if we do, that means we are close friends and that we can trust his promises to be true. Are you prepared? Are you ready? Dear friends, be ready. The time is getting close and we are called as believers to be awake and to not be asleep. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to link his website below in the show notes, wherever you're listening to your podcast, you should be able to find that. And I'm also going to link to some of the videos because really, uh, you know, it's hard to fully grasp just how breathtaking and amazing this site and the surrounding sites around the mountain are without having seen them. I mean, the rock of Horeb is beautiful and being able to capture it with drone is, is really a remarkable thing. So I would highly recommend go and watch them. Uh, it should really be an encouragement to your faith and just to see the places where history was being made and that uh, we can be reminded that God fulfills and keeps his word. If you're enjoying these podcasts, I would recommend, or I would ask that you please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And far, as far as supporting the show, now I've talked about this $5 a month to get, you know, this monthly long form bonus episode content. I just want to make a quick disclaimer on that. Uh, friends, there is an attempt uh, to silence and squash out voices in the Christian community, voices that are trying to proclaim truth right now. I have had the hardest time trying to get bonus content set up in order to uh, put out there in order to, you know, I wanted to give something, an incentive to try and help, you know, keep the lights on here. You know, we, we pay for uh, distribution fees and, you know, licensing fees for a lot of the music. And I'm wanting to be, um, you know, wanting to present to you something that is um, 
well put together and pleasant to the ear. Uh, it does require some funds. And so I wanted to put that, uh, together these bonus episodes and just have, you know, long-form discussions about all the many different things that are going on in the world. And just getting it set up has been so difficult. Uh, I had a Patreon. I retired that in order to go through my distributor. My distributor, like I'm trying to do this this uh, all through my distributor for bonus episodes, and like it's just not working. There's this apparently all these quote-unquote errors. So I'm going to probably go back to Patreon and, and start trying to release there again. And depending on how much time I have, I, I may even do more than just monthly content. Because uh, frankly, it's getting late, guys, in the hour. Uh, and I'm exhausted, as I'm sure many of you are. But it, it's my hope that come uh, the fall, I'll be doing weekly episodes again. I mean, I could pull out, you know, a news article every week and talk about it's it the significance of it, you know, in the days we find ourselves in. I don't want you to go and be saturated in bad news. Remember to keep your eyes on the good news of Jesus. He is coming. So let's keep our eyes on that. But just know... I'm trying to get bonus content to you and just be, uh, you know, keep your eyes open for that. If you don't see any links for it, don't worry. I'm trying to get that taken care of. I, you know, appreciate all your prayers uh, and getting that resolved. If you have questions or comments, please send me an email here at this late hour podcast at gmail.com or visit our Twitter at Casey Knowlton or the Facebook page, this late hour. And a quick comment on the Facebook page. I don't do much there. Most of these places are just uh, places where the episodes will land because, again, social media is also a place where if you say much of anything that's true, you're likely to get a mark or get banned. In fact, if you remember from season one, I had a, a long discussion with my friend David about the vaccines. Just a very, you know, uh, laid back conversation, you know, about why he decided to get vaccinated, why I didn't. That was banned off YouTube. I mean, I... I provided links to articles. I don't know that we said anything that was untrue. And yet still, it was, you know, labeled misinformation. So this is the day and age we live in, folks. So thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Season 2 of This Late Hour. And please tune in next time, where I'm going to hopefully be breaking down, yes, I'm going there, uh, Revelation 6, with the horsemen of the apocalypse and the seven seals of Revelation. Stanley Alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. You have been listening to this late hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.